0: Amen. All right, let's go Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that one home, that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is really, really simple. Um, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. Uh, one of those things is to reveal himself to us and, and to teach us about salvation and teach us what is pleasing to him and all those things. And, <clears throat> and so if, if, if that's the tool, the main tool that God uses to give himself to his people, like, like it's kind of wise to be reading it for yourself, right? Like, that's what you want to do. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we can send you home with one. If you'll start reading it, I'll call it a win. And so uh, Matthew chapter 28. um, We have, for those of us who have been here over the last couple of months, been walking through a series that we've been calling the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. And the premise for that series is real, real simple. In Matthew chapter 4... Uh, We're told that Jesus is walking around in the region that he would have called home, the region of Judea, the region of Galilee, uh, not far from the place he grew up. And uh, we're told that he is preaching in the synagogue with authority and that he's doing miracles and he's casting out demons and that he's, quote, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I I think most of us, if we have any familiarity at all with Jesus, kind of, kind of get the, oh yeah, he taught with authority and he did miracles and all these kinds of things, but it's the preaching the gospel of the kingdom part that we wanted to flesh out and really kind of explore. And so um, we, the question is, well, what is the gospel of the kingdom? What, what is the kingdom? And so Jesus, though, he doesn't leave us hanging. He, he immediately after that, we're told in the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5 that he sits down on a hillside and he teaches this one long extended sermon. And we, uh, those of us in church you know, over the years have, have come to call this sermon the Sermon on the Mount. right. And so uh, you're probably familiar with that if you have any background with the Bible at all. All right. Some of the most famous stuff that Jesus ever said, at least that we recorded, uh, is in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the most important stuff that we know that he said is in the Sermon on the Mount. Like even if you don't have much of a Bible background, you can probably quote some things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. They just kind of make it just kind of makes its way across culture that way. But the things that that stand out the most about this sermon is that it seems that Jesus' kingdom, he he calls himself the king of this kingdom, that Jesus' kingdom is upside down and backwards and, and just different from what this world would offer. That it chases after something different. Maybe diametrically opposed even to what this world chases after. And it values something different than what this world values. And it celebrates and exalts and lifts up different things. And what this world would chase after and lift up and exalt. And and Jesus, His kingdom is is just otherworldly. It's different in every way. And Jesus lets us know that His kingdom with a capital A is marked by a deep humility that would see God correctly and therefore see ourselves and our sin correctly. And when we see God correctly and we see ourselves and our sin correctly, well, that, that changes and affects everything else. Everything else flows out of that. It's a kingdom that values sacrifice. And gives away grace at a level that oftentimes just dumbfounds the world. They don't know how to process it. It's a kingdom that looks at and understands us in our hearts way, way deeper than the surface level games we tend to play with ourselves. Am I alone in that? Probably not. But it's also a kingdom that breathes change into us and births new life into us and actually gives us a new heart. It changes us all the way down at our core. We've also learned over the course of this series that while Jesus' kingdom is slowly creeping forward day by day, the Bible promises that there will one day come a time when this kingdom is here with full force and stand forever. That the already but not yet kingdom will just be the kingdom. So those are big promises, right? Like Revelation 21 seems to paint the picture of what this forever kingdom will look like. And it, it says these grandiose things. Like, like death and sorrow will be no more. Like how many of y'all have been met with, with the pain of death and sorrow even just this month? Last up here prayed just a moment ago about uh, churches being burned in Louisiana and bombs going off in Sri Lanka today. Death and sorrow no more. That's a bold promise. But Jesus makes those kinds of promises. He also says that that he will wipe away every tear forever. That sin will be no more. That death will be no more. That pain and sorrow will be no more. Can he actually deliver on that? Well, today I want to walk us through why I think he can and it's because he's already done most of the hard work. He's already accomplished it, actually. See, we learned last week that Jesus' entire reason for putting on flesh and dwelling among us was that he had a date with the cross. And that there was absolutely nothing that could stand in his way of getting to that point. He, he came for a mission. In fact, the entire Old Testament promised that this day would come and it would play out exactly like it would play out. In fact, we learned last week that Jesus rode into town on a donkey. Specifically to pick a fight. It was he kind of treated it like a coronation day. He rode in as a king in a parade and everybody's declaring him to be Hosanna and the highest and the son of David who would sit on his throne forever. But that coronation doesn't stop there because Matthew tells us that Jesus immediately after that goes into the temple. And this is the context if you know your Bible kind of halfway, that Jesus starts flipping over tables and driving out money changers. The king arrives to his kingdom and he starts to clean house. So we learned last week that Jesus went in specifically to pick a fight because he was destined for the cross and he knew it. He knew what his mission was and why he came. And this is why any telling of the crucifixion story that that tries or attempts to paint Jesus as a victim ultimately falls short. Because the Bible is explicitly clear that there was not a second of that that whole deal that was outside of Jesus' control. And so, yeah, the the crucifixion scene, the scourging and the the cross narrative, Jesus' death on the cross, they they were real and they were heinous. Like, Like... it, it serves the soul good to, to dwell on those things for a little while and at least come to terms with the gruesome reality of Jesus' death. Those aren't, those aren't light things to ponder. But the Bible is explicitly clear that he could have taken his life up in a moment if he chose. And that he would have had an army of angels at one point were told come to rescue him. The Bible is as clear as anything can be clear that the king of the cosmos laid his own life down. Full stop. This is what we spent our time talking about Friday night a couple nights ago. Like He was rejected by the very people he had raised above every other nation. Right? That's, that's who the Israelites are, people he loved and gave himself to despite the, their sin, and despite their repeated rejection of him. But the king endured the cross, not because he's some glutton for punishment, but because he was playing the long game. The Bible says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured it and despised its shame. It also says that Jesus died in order to purchase a people for himself from all the nations. The debt for our sin and our rebellion against God had to be paid by someone. He said, pick me, pick me. And it had to be paid in order for us to be reconciled to him and for a broken creation to be made new. But this isn't a new reality, though. It's, it's kind of an old reality. This was the picture that was given to God's people all the way back in the time of the Exodus. If you, if you don't know your Bible well, like the entire sacrificial system of the Jewish people from Exodus on in the Old Testament was built around, revolved around, telling the story of a substitute. Week after week, month after month, year after year, sacrifice after bloody sacrifice for a millennia. You can't count the number of sheep that died gruesome deaths on that altar. At one place, we're told that blood never stopped flowing from the temple like a river. That's not a pretty picture. Nothing about that picture is attractive. But the Bible teaches that the entire thing was a shadow built around the promise of a future lamb of God who would one day take away the sins of the world. That every lamb that died on that altar was pointing to some greater lamb so Jesus enters into the temple and He picks a fight and He does it on purpose because the cross was a necessity. He came to die. But like I said before, the king is playing the long game. And just like we sang earlier, what, what many of His enemies thought would be His great defeat, those who... Didn't know any better or were blind to what he had been promising all along. What they thought would be his greatest defeat is actually the very tool he used for his greatest victory. And so now we get to turn to his great victory this morning. Join me in Matthew 28. We're going to start in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. All right, so let's stop there for a second. So we're told here that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the Mary, uh, Mary the mother of Jesus. All right, and uh, in Luke's gospel, we're to- told that there's another lady named Joanne. And in Mark's gospel, we're told that there's another lady named Salome. All right, that they're all on their way to the tomb at dawn. So why are they going there and why at that time? Well, Jesus died on Friday afternoon, and sundown on Friday is when the Sabbath began. All right? So uh, faithful Jews were not permitted to work on the Sabbath day, and so as soon as sundown hit, they, they, they couldn't do the work of preparing the body the proper way for burial. All right? So what do they do? Well, we're told at the end of chapter 27 of Matthew that they wrap Jesus up quickly in a cloth and they place him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, some brand new tomb that was for him. He was a rich dude. So he had this nice brand new tomb that was going to be his and he loved Jesus, and so he wanted to give it to him. So they wrap him up quickly and they put him in that tomb with the expectation that when the Sabbath was over, they come back and prepare him the right way. That was the plan. We're also told at the end of chapter 27 that the religious leaders who made sure that Jesus was executed are worried that someone might try to steal Jesus' body. And so they make a request to Pilate, and he gives them a troop of Roman soldiers, a small band of Roman soldiers, to guard the tomb because a giant stone that they had rolled in front of the entrance didn't seem to be enough for them. They were worried about it, and so they request some help, and Pilate gives them a small band of soldiers, and their job is now to watch the tomb for a few days. And so the ladies are on their way at first light to honor Jesus with a proper burial. And when they get there, what do they find? Well, the stone has been rolled away. There's an angel sitting on top of it, and all the guards have fainted. What kind of morning have you had? (laughs) Hey, what'd you do today? (laughs) Never guess. Let me tell you about it. Wildest thing. Look at verse 3 again. His appearance, the angel's appearance, was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. In case you think less of the guards, this is always, and I'll repeat that for emphasis, always the way people react to seeing an angel in the Bible. Always. Get cute little cherubim that your grandma had as a knickknack on her shelf out of your mind. That's a cartoon. In the Bible, when angels show up, they're always saying, "Hey, no, no, don't worry, don't worry. We're not here to kill you. Please don't die. It's okay. I'm a good guy." That's how it works every time. So the Roman guards they hit the deck, and then the stone has been rolled away. And so look what happens next in verse five. But the angel said to the woman, "Do not be afraid." There it is again. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Okay, so um, he says, I know you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. And this is huge. He's risen as he said he would. That's a massive statement. Think about the implications of that for a second. As he said. Jesus told him over and over and over again that things were going to play out this morning exactly the way that they were playing out this morning. Over and over again. And I mean, just in, just in Matthew's gospel alone, we see it several times. I've got a couple of verses written down here. I don't think I gave it to the guys on the screen. But Matthew 16, 21 and 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus tells them verbatim that he's going to die and he's going to rise again three days later. And Peter goes, brilliant Peter goes, nah, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Because Peter, he's not that bright sometimes. Like, you're you're really going to argue with Jesus in this moment? You think that's going to go well for you? Peter's like, nah, that can't be right. And so Jesus calls him Satan. If Jesus calls you Satan, you're having a bad day. Just, you are. Good job, Peter. You're doing great. Don't change a thing. Chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's a nickname for himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Oh, that Jesus, broken record. Chapter 26, verses 30-32. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is literally happening the night before he died. The countdown clock is no longer reading days. It's in the hours now. This is happening the night before he died. He tells them exactly what's about to happen, and yet... They missed it terribly. Just completely oblivious. His followers seemed to always have their own ideas about who Jesus was and what he came to do. Whether that was through political means or through force or maybe just subversion. Every single one of them, not a soul was left out. Every one of them carried their own baggage into that relationship. They all thought that this guy is going to show those bullies who's boss and drive Rome out of here. They had their different explanations as to how, but that's where they were landing the plane. They all carried their own preconceived ideas about Jesus that completely ignored what Jesus had actually and repeatedly said about himself. Which raises an incredibly important question for us, I think. Do do we ignore the real Jesus too sometimes? Do we... Ignore the clear teaching of the Bible for things that we all just kind of really hope to be true, wish to be true, blindly believe to be true. Are we capable of carrying our own preconceived notions into this relationship? And this is one of the biggest reasons why we're always pushing y'all so hard around here to pick up a Bible and read this story for yourselves. we, We want you to actually know Jesus like the real one. Because hear me clearly, it, it profits you exactly nothing to know the Jesus of your own imagination. Not a bit. doesn't matter how gentle and lowly you've decided to make him out to be. The Jesus of your imagination can't do any of the things that the real Jesus does. But you're also not the first one to fall victim to that because his disciples did too. And sometimes so do I. And, and so the angel tells these ladies, what are you doing here? In Luke's account of this story, he says, hey, why are you searching for the living among the dead? In other words, why are you looking for a living person where dead people hang out? It seems like a bad idea. It's not going not to give you the fruit that you're chasing after. He's not here. He's risen as he said he would. When we look at verse 7, he gives them some instructions. <clears throat> He says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Okay, so remember back just a few moments ago when we read Matthew chapter 26 and Jesus told him verbatim that after he rose from the dead, he was to meet him in Galilee. They should probably start making their way to Galilee, huh? Right? Yeah. Look at verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, "Greetings." And he came up and he took and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, "Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me." All right, so the ladies begin running back to inform the disciples and Jesus just suddenly appears out of nowhere. Like, what kind of emotions do you think are flooding them at this moment? Like, just play through the last little bit with them. Like, first, there's sorrow, right? Like, Jesus was their friend, and their friend died a gruesome death just a few days before. Is anybody walking on clouds after that moment? Like, that's a sad weekend for you. There's sorrow in that moment. But not only that, they actually literally believed that he was going to be the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, he's cut down, and everything's just over. So I guess we'll just go home now. They've been following this guy for maybe up to three years by this point. What? What now? They've devoted their whole lives to him, and now he's gone. But not only is there sorrow; sorrow kind of gives way to frustration. Like they wanted to give him a proper burial, but the Sabbath is standing in the way, and they got to wait until it's over. Like, you ever had a job to do and you just wanted to get it done, but you, there was something else holding it up? Like, how frustrating is that for you? But sorrow eventually and frustration eventually give way to loving duty. They get up at dawn and they make their way to the temple or to the tomb. Despite their pain, they're going to get the job done. They're going to give him the burial they think he deserves. And what are they met with when they get there? Confusion, right? like, what's going on here? The the tomb is open. All the guards are laying on the ground. But confusion immediately gives way to fear because scary angel dude sitting on top of the, the, the stone. They start saying these really amazing things and so fear disappears and they're immediately filled with hope. Are you serious right now? Are you you telling me the truth? Is this this really true? Is this actually happening? And then hope turns to excitement as they race back to the disciples. Anticipation is building with every step they take, every deep gasp of air they pull into their lungs as they race desperately to tell the news. Excitement builds and builds and builds, and then all of a sudden, there he is! There he is standing in front of him. Like, like, how do you respond in that moment? What's going through your head in that moment? The Bible tells us that they grab him by the feet and worship. Don't go anywhere. Stay here with us. Like, how many questions do you think they have for him in this moment? Where did you go? Why did you do this? Where have you been? You know the kind of questions that that that, that lovingly sound like really mean? Those if, uh, you apparently don't know what I'm talking about. Like, you know the kind of questions that that they love him and they want good for him, but they're like, "How dare you leave us like this?" You've experienced them. You've asked those questions. Does anybody think that they would have just stayed there all day if Jesus let them? Let's just let's just park it right here, sit on the side of the road, talk to each other. But what does Jesus do? He gently pushes them forward on their assignment. Go, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee because the king came for a specific purpose and so there was a job to do. Go, go, go tell the disciples, meet me in Galilee. This isn't over yet. There's more to be done. Look at verse 11. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Okay, so according to Matthew, uh, some of the guard that had been assigned to uh, secure Jesus' tomb, the troop of Roman guards that had been loaned to the Sanhedrin by Pilate, they go back and report to the Sanhedrin what had happened, which seems like something that probably needs to happen, right? They're working for the Sanhedrin. They've been hired out. They go report back to the people that are, are in charge of them. And we're told by Matthew that the Jewish leaders hold an official council and they come out of that council with a bribe for the soldiers. They are also tell the guards to lie about what happened. They're to say that Jesus' followers had come in the middle of the night and stolen his body away. They're also told that if Pilate, the governor, happens to find out what happened, that they'll cover for him. That the council would make sure that they don't get into trouble. And that's necessary because to be a Roman guard and to fail in your responsibility of guarding something means you get executed. It doesn't end well for the guard that failed. So they tell him, no, 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 listen, listen. We'll vouch for you. So they pay him some money. They create a rumor. They give a little wink, wink, nod, nod. Nudge, nudge. and Then everybody goes their separate ways. While it's easy to point out several things that happen in this paragraph, it's, I think, incredibly important to to notice what doesn't happen in this moment. They never actually deal with whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. They they don't care. What does it say? While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had happened, all that had taken place. And when they assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient. Like, it immediately moves. It immediately moves from hearing the news to spin control. It immediately moves to, we got to suppress this and deal with the situation. They never actually deal with the claim that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They don't care. The report comes in, and immediately they go to cover up. It doesn't matter to them if Jesus is really who he says he is. And it doesn't matter to them if Jesus has really done what he says he has done because they are desperate to hang on to the control that they have and they will go to pretty laughable efforts to keep it. And this whole scene raises a pretty interesting question to me. Why does Matthew tell this story? I mean, is any skeptic who struggles with the fact of the resurrection going to read this paragraph from Matthew and go, Oh, okay then. You convince me, I'll change my mind. Is anyone who doubts that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be going to have their mind changed from the short little explanation about how the body snatcher's rumor got kicked off? I, I don't think they would. So, so why does Matthew include this part of the story in his, in his account? I mean, if you're a skeptic, what, what's in here for you? With a gentle but pretty serious concern for you, I would ask the simple question. Have you actually dealt with the truth claims of Jesus? Or have you, like the chief priests in the Jewish council, simply ignored those claims because it allowed you to hang on to your power or preconceived notions? Have you actually dealt with who Jesus claims to be, or did you fly right past it because give me any other explanation, it'll do. It can't be true. I will not allow it to be true. I don't care. What we see here in Matthew's gospel is the final step of the full rejection of Israel's king by Israel. We talked Friday night about his rejection through the cross. He, He claimed to be king and they said, we don't want you to be our king. So they executed him. We won't allow you to be our king. And here, they refuse to even bother checking to see if what he said might, well, you know, actually be true. We don't want you to be king. But hear me. If it's actually true. If the resurrection really did happen, is there anything it doesn't change? It changes everything. In case you don't know your Bible as well, let me spell it out for you. Um, to read the Bible is one overarching story. And yeah, yeah, there's lots of little stories, but the best way to read the Bible is one overarching story. And, and if you do it that way, it leaves you with some major plot points to grab a hold of. And the first plot point is pretty obvious. God created everything good. And he created us in his image to rule with him forever. It's a really good plot point, but it doesn't last very long because three chapters into the Bible, you get the second plot point. Follows right on the heels of the first one. and that we broke this place. That's the second plot point. Our sin and our rejection of God as the good, wise creator king. Our usurpation that puts ourselves on the throne of our lives and actions instead of God. And the Bible teaches that that traitorous act is met rightly and justly with a traitor's punishment. Death. Romans 6.23 is as clear as day. For the wages of sin, the thing rightly earned by our sin is death. Both physical death and spiritual death. To die physically is pretty obvious. Everybody understands that. Everybody's experienced that at some level and will experience that at its full level soon. But to die spiritually is to be separated from God forever. And the Bible teaches that this is why every single one of us has a shelf life. Every single one of us, myself included, is destined for the grave. You, me, your weird neighbor you never talked to, all of us. Even the most resolute among us have got about 100 years max. Doesn't matter if your thing is CrossFit or tacos. Okay, if your thing is tacos, you might drop a few years off the back end. But death is still batting a 1,000. Right? You may extend it a little bit, but death always claims its reward. But Romans 6.23 doesn't just promise the punishment for sin. Immediately after that, it says, But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And see, while every single one of us will one day die physically, not any of us have to necessarily die spiritually. And this is why the resurrection is just as theologically important as the cross. As Christians, we make a big deal about the cross. I mean, we got, we got them all around our church. Like, this one's there all the time. We make a big deal about the cross. But theologically speaking, the resurrection is exactly as important as the cross. Because through the cross, the good, wise creator king paid the punishment our sin deserved by dying himself. But it's through his resurrection that he unites us to himself in his life. We read we read a Corinthians passage a while ago in the middle of our of our song set that said, listen, if the resurrection isn't true, we are above most all people most to be pitied. It's like, what are we doing here? If all we got is our 80 to 100 years, let's go buy a boat, enjoy ourselves. But if the resurrection is true, and eternity is on the line here, Maybe our 80 to 100 years is small by comparison. And there's something worthy of investing in now for later. And so now those who belong to Him, who have placed their faith in Him and His finished work on their behalf, both cross and resurrected grave, we too have the promise of eternal life. The king of the already but not yet kingdom was not content to sit on a faraway throne and watch us bleed. He came and bled for us. He came and defeated death itself. He came and to give us new life found only in him and he came to call many by faith into his forever kingdom. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the kind of news that must be shared with the cosmos. And so that leads us to verse 16. If the resurrection really is true, the whole world needs to hear about it. And so the king is about to give his instructions. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Hey, they finally made it there. Good for them. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Can I just stop right there for a second? I love the honesty of the Bible. Like if you're writing this story yourself and you're trying to make yourself look like the good guy, this part doesn't make the cut. They reveal themselves to be morons. Even after all Jesus says, even after he is standing in front of them physically, they're going, I don't know. We'll figure it out on the way, I guess. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. King Jesus defeated sin and death. King Jesus carries all authority in heaven and on earth. King Jesus gives his command. He says, go, tell everyone else from all the other places who I am, and what I have done. And that seems like a big task, but oh, don't you worry, because King Jesus promises to go with you. I'm with you always, he says. So anything he calls you to, he also accompanies you for. And so the good king reigns, and he is making all things new as his already but not yet kingdom inches forward day by day. So what do we, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Like anytime God's word is proclaimed, it needs to be responded to. Action should occur immediately after that because it's live and it does something, right? And so whenever God's word is proclaimed, it ought to be given an opportunity to respond. So the question becomes, what in the world do we do with this? How do we respond to God's word today? For those of you who are followers of Jesus, your response is to press into God today, and I think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning in to what He's called you to do. Take the earth-shaking reality of the resurrection and use it as your fuel for making Him and His works known to everyone else in all the other places. That's how we respond. Because if the resurrection is true, what what in the world could be more valuable for someone to learn? To be told of. It literally shapes their eternity. So maybe the question you need to answer this morning is. Who has God putting in your pathway this week. That needs to be told this incredible news. Who needs to hear that death itself has been vanquished by the good king. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you. If that would serve you this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. Listen, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. You do that by repenting of sin and calling on Jesus as Lord. Romans 6.23 is clear that the wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve, myself included. But it's also clear that eternal life is promised as a free gift to those who put their hope and trust in Jesus. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead are the tools he uses to reconcile us to himself. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and we'll have some leaders up front here to walk you through what that decision looks like. But maybe today is the day that you will finally respond to his call of grace. King Jesus invites you into his kingdom too. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who who loved us in spite of us. And even though I deserve punishment for sin, and even though I can count on two hands even this morning the times that I've chosen myself over you, and I've exalted myself over you, even though I can remember a long string of rejections, you press in. And you love us with a great love. And you call us yours. You came to pay the debt that my sin owes. And you have beaten the punishment of that sin, death itself, for me. So, God, as we respond to your word this morning, would you give courage and would you give a renewed sense of chasing after what you call us to? For those in here who belong to you, would you bring to mind, even right now, those who need to hear of the resurrection today? Don't you dare let us leave out of here and say that was a good Easter service. Your life changes the world. And it changes heaven. And it changes forever. So put the gospel on our lips today. God, for those in here who who don't know you yet, would you awaken hearts to know you? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand? We believe that you're the God who saves. So do that today. Call people to yourself. Show them your goodness. Show them your great love. Show them your mercy. And call them yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.